0: Hey, everyone, this week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by g and FilmTools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high performance hard drives. If you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now onto the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Sandra Adair, ACE. Sandra is an Oscar nominee and Ace Eddie winner for Editing Boyhood. She was also nominated for an Ace Eddie for Editing School of Rock. Her filmography also includes editing work back to the late 80s with movies like Dazed and Confused, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, Bad News Bears, and A Scanner Darkly. She is well known for her longtime collaboration with director Richard Linklater. That collaboration continues with the film we discussed today, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It's uh, so good to good. talk to you. I loved the movie <laughs> last night.
1: Oh, yay! <laughs>
0: i thoroughly enjoyed it tell me a little bit about the structure of the movie i was really interested i figured most of it was probably done in the writing but um did the structure change at all from script to screen through post
1: well from script to screen no i mean I, the structure was the structure i think from the script they, they shot what they wrote in post the structure did change somewhat in that the the original cut, the first cut, was almost three hours long. So there was a lot of material that came out of the film and a lot of things that moved within the film. And there was a lot of experimentation that happened in that period of post where we tried, for instance, the documentary. That was probably the most time spent editing was on the documentary because at first it was two docs that ran 15 or 20 minutes each and they had so many iterations at one point we had a whole sequence about Bernadette's early career and her involvement in building the Getty Museum and really really delving deeply into her process of found objects and incorporating found objects into her architecture and it became just too much of a it just became too much so we tried opening the film with a documentary feeling that if we got off on the foot of the audience understanding that she was a professional well regarded architect from the very beginning of the movie that it would inform everything that came after but originally and in the script form it did start with Bernadette being missing and that scene where her daughter says you can't always know a person but it doesn't hurt to try that used to open the film (laughs) a lot of things did shift a lot of things moved around and and we decided that rather than starting the film with the documentary we would just pull it forward from where it was in script order so that we would get to the documentary as soon as the architecture student recognized her at the library. Originally, it was gonna come a lot later in the film. Mm. There's a lot that happens in a film when you have to take an hour out of it. So that whittling process reveals more opportunity than you think it's going to. First, it feels very daunting and, you know, like how in the hell are we ever gonna pull this off? But it reveals a lot of opportunity in it. I always liken it to getting a good haircut. Once you cut one part of your hair, if you don't cut the other part, it's like, oh, wow, that part really looks misshapen and out of control. And so it's a process, you know, it just, you just have to make it all the way around the entire head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that analogy. Um, you addressed a lot of what I was interested in, which was the movie starts out where you don't really understand who she is. She's just kind of uh, this quirky character that you don't understand until much later in the film, which I thought was a wonderful revelation. I I loved that structure.
1: It's a fine line to be able to string an audience along long enough to receive the revelation later in the film. And so... Part of the challenge for me was to keep Bernadette as likable as she could be within the confines of who she actually is and was. And I think as you find out more and more about Bernadette, and things are revealed in mm-hmm. that cafe scene with her and Paul Jelinek, her her peer architect, the big long cafe scene, Things are revealed in that scene that are not necessarily explained, and then they are explained more fully in the second part of the documentary. But there are little clues dropped along the way about that she's had this interesting past and that obviously from her surroundings, that house and the incredible design detail that's in that house, you know she's eccentric and thoughtful intellectual, and also a mom, and a, a key person in this family.
0: I wonder what it would have done to have started with the documentary, or more of an explanation. I, I loved the revelation later, but uh, are you saying yeah. that at some point you really considered uh, putting that at the top?
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did it for a minute. I mean, it wasn't, didn't last long, <laughs> because we do, I think it's, it, it always had and the script always had the film starting in Antarctica and then flashing back to all the events that led to her moment of being on that still water and also we were really in love with that drone shot of the dark black water with the kayaks kind of floating into frame oh yeah and we really loved that as an opening shot and wanted to use that. And we did pull the documentary close enough to the front that um, we felt like we got there soon enough.
0: Did you feel uh, when you're trying to edit that being in the perspective of Bernadette was critical or did that inform you in any way? How, how does perspective inform your editing? the whole movie, really. I mean, she, she and her relationship with her husband and her
1: increasing neurosis and obsession with, you know, Seattle and all of that. The film is about a very conflicted woman who has been at the very top of her game and then, you know, has this ridiculously horrible neighbor sort of a cartoon figure type person, destroy one of her finest creations, the thing that kind of put her on the map. And the bitterness and resentment and just utter wanting to run away from that environment that she had been so successful in 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 L.A., it drives everything about Bernadette at this time in her life. There's no escaping being in Bernadette's point of view for the whole film. She's the entire son of the whole movie.
0: Did it inform choosing her, um, coverage to try to be in well, her perspective or no?
1: A little bit, yes, I would say yes. And, you know, Kate's performance is flawless in so many ways in that she delivered a huge range of, for us to select from, particularly in the cafe scene. That is, it's a really long scene. It's, I don't know what it ended up being in the final film, but it was at least twice that in the original cut.
0: So to explain to the Uh, uh, people that are listening, that cafe scene would be where she's talking to the Lawrence Fishburne character and then the psychologist is, you're also intercutting with the psychologist?
1: Yes, exactly. So she's talking to Lawrence Fishburne in a cafe, and the scenes were designed to be intercut, and the way Rick shot them was each individual scene, like a portion of a longer conversation, and we kind of intercut in between the two conversations where LG is meeting with a psychologist about the condition of his wife's. Life. He's very confused by Bernadette and worried about her. And um, Bernadette's conversation with Lawrence Fishburne, she hasn't seen him in a very, very long time. He was a peer of hers, a, a famous architect, a teacher of architecture. And she is slowly revealing to him what's been going on with her for the last 20 years. And so these two conversations are intercut and in the process of intercutting those two you find out so much about her quirkiness her psychological anxiety and almost agoraphobia and LG is kind of revealing to this psychologist his concern for Bernadette his love for Bernadette what attracted him to Bernadette in the first place and the way the scenes were designed each component, each part of the cut, the camera is moving in a way that makes a very fluid kind of conversation between the two people in the cafe and the two people in the LG's office. And there was material in there that if you wanted to make a three-hour movie, you could, and it would still be interesting, but some of the stories and some of the components didn't necessarily drive you toward learning more about Bernadette and their relationship. So anyway, it was very challenging because it's a tightrope walk. You don't want to damage story. You don't want to damage character. But you do want it to feel like it's got a purpose and that it's not meandering and that you know, you're know you revealing more and more and more. There's a whole section in, in that in a sequence where you find out that after bernadette ran away from la and goes to seattle she has a series of miscarriages and it's devastating for her and yet what comes out of it is the birth of her daughter b who is the sort of the center of bernadette's universe right now and there's a lot of symbolism with the birth of the daughter being wound up with um St. Bernadette having 18 miracles and the daughter being one of the 18 miracles for St. Bernadette. Anyway, it's a very well-thought-out, very complex series of scenes that required a lot of editing and rearranging. I actually rearranged some of those sequences uh, also. The thing about Lawrence Fishburne, he is an incredible actor, obviously. I'm not saying anything that people don't already know about him, but his ability to tune in to Bernadette and to actually actively listen. Every time I would want to find a piece to cut to him, he was always engaged, participating in the conversation, even though he really didn't say very much at all until the very end of the scene and um really hard to find reaction shots where you feel like someone is engaged in that kind of lengthy conversation
0: how do you approach a scene when you're doing something like that are are, do you pull selects are you just writing notes when you see a beautiful reaction shot
1: Mm, no i kind of pull reaction shots as i need them Mm -hmm. as i want them and then i search for the perfect piece For that particular in and out that I need, Rick always shoots these long conversations with cups and cigarettes and dishes
0: and drinks and forks (laughs) and knives, and I'm like, I know where that's going. (laughs) Can you ever shoot a scene like this where there's no props involved at all? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And why does that matter, Sandra?
1: I mean, it just is. It's challenging, you know. I never let it kind of dictate what I have to do but you know you do pray that the actors are have a little bit of mindfulness about what they're doing with their hands and and their arms and their props and their head position and all that it just helps you do your job better it does weigh in when you're cutting to a away from a medium shot to another medium shot and if there's you know some Buddy's holding a cut in one shot and not in the other it's a big deterrent from using that particular piece of film it's just all part of the job and part of finessing and finessing and finessing finding the right pieces that work with one another yeah so that's why i don't take i don't take notes of, oh this is the perfect reaction shot because you never know what you're going to encounter when you at that exact frame where you're going to want to cut, then you have to find the exact right piece for that out point to be able to come in and out. And so I just wait until I need something and then I go, what I call, go fishing.
0: Mm-hmm. And you go fishing straight into the bins, looking at individual clips, not into a select. select reel. Correct. Yeah. That's
1: correct. I go back to the original dailies all the time. I, I mean, I do... Use selects for some things, and I use locators. I really rely on locators. The way Rick shoots, he shoots series, so he doesn't cut the camera. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there are multiple takes within one take, and he'll have actors go over the same section of a scene over and over and over, and it's connected to the end of, of a full take. So... A lot of times I just have to rely on locators with notes rather than selects because, I don't know, it's just really hard for me to get in the groove of things when there's like a string out just of selects. Or I know that some editors do like all the takes on one line and put them on a timeline. All Here's all that one line from all the different angles and all the different takes. Mm-hmm. And then you watch all that, and you pull the best performance. I do that sometimes, but it's very hard for me to get into kind of the rhythm when it's presented to me that way. I'd much rather watch the dailies, the performance, as it came out of the actor's
0: mouth. Uh, You mentioned back a, a few minutes ago about the performances and the range of performances you were given. As you were going through the process of editing the film, did you find that you needed a different uh, temperature or a different tone to a performance, and then you would go look for it?
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. Early on in the shoot, the first thing they shot was that cafe scene with uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Kate, and it was several days of that. And since it was early on in the shoot, Kate gave a, a huge range from A to Z of the temperature of those performances and it was wonderful because as the scene progressed because she gave me such a range I was able to you know have her be just totally friendly and warm and uh, excited to see her friend at the very beginning and then as their conversation gets more and more detailed you get more of a sense of her her obsession with and her anxiety about her daughter and her panic attacks about the destroyed house and there's a measured calculation of how much more manic she gets as the scenes progress and of course she's totally in control of what the kinds of performance that she gives but she did give a really nice range so that when she tells the story about the miscarriages, you know, she gets very emotional, she quiets down, and there's a lot of ebb and flow to those scenes in particular and in the way she she delivered her performance.
0: Uh, And we've got a little clip of that that's available to us. Um, When you watch that or when you think about that scene or that piece of the scene that I sent you, Could you talk to me a little bit about choosing those moments of of when to be on and when to be off of an actor when they're speaking?
1: Let me just say this. I think when someone is delivering a line and the words fall on another person, it gives those words a particular meaning. And when you're on someone's face when they're saying the words, it's a different way of receiving the information as an audience. And I think a lot of those reaction shots were used as a little bit of a punctuation of a a little bit of a pause and a respite from, you know, what's being said and a reason to just kind of pause for a second to let your, if something settle in or sink in. And that's generally how I like to use reaction shots. It also keeps the people connected even if it's a monologue, if you have another person at the table, it keeps, you know, there's some there receiving the information and either being judgmental or not judgmental or just taking it in or it keeps people connected.
0: There's a big intervention scene in the movie that's a, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe that's the launch into act three, uh, but anyhow, there's a big mm-hmm. scene where there's this intervention, and there's a lot of people in the scene, and they're all over a room, and they tend to move, and the blocking changes throughout the scene, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about how you were able to keep the eye lines right, or what were what were the difficulties of cutting that very complicated scene.
1: I didn't really have any eye line problems, and Rick rehearses the scene so that he fine tuned. so. I generally don't run into eyeline problems. Um, that's just kind of not a thing that I have to deal with. Thank God. There were a lot of people in the scene, and I don't know. I, again, I think I work—you know—moment by moment, just mm-hmm. finding the right piece for each moment, keeping the connection between the actors, and letting people interact and relate to each other as they would naturally i mean there's a certain natural flow to a scene like that where one person is saying something the other person has to react one way or another and and move around and and the way it's shot i mean it's very well blocked very well choreographed most of the people in that scene are seated and bernadette is the one who's moving so the camera tracks her eyeline That scene also was cut way down. There was a lot more interaction between Sue Lynn and LG early on before Bernadette arrives. That whole first part of the scene was much longer as they're waiting for Bernadette to arrive. And we kind of got Sue Lynn and the FBI agent out of the room a lot sooner than they were. Originally, so that scene was cut down. But the main thing that I really, really wanted to achieve in that scene was the fact that LG and the psychologist are living in an entirely different reality than Bernadette. And the complexity of the story is that Bernadette's reality is she's not off her rocker, she's not crazy. She's conflicted, she's confused, she's anxious. What happens with her husband, in his effort to understand and help, He off on this totally weird wavelength where their marriage has been falling apart for a long time, and it kind of culminates in this intervention where that is totally unnecessary. There's one moment when they look at each other and her eyes fill with tears when she finally understands where he's at and what he's done. And he looks at her and has tears in his eyes, and he's realizing also that he's come to this very difficult point, and he's, he's hurting her. It's a very intense moment. They're both incredibly conflicted and their relationship is very lost at that moment. And so the goal for me always is yeah there's blocking there's eyelines there's continuity there's all this stuff but what matters what really matters is the connection between the people and the story.
0: Right which is hard to do sometimes when you have to cut out so much of the <laughs> so much of the scene yeah. right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And that's also um, tricky with the actors' performances because if they are building to a certain place in their performance and you're trying to cut out half of that <laughs> journey, that's that can be tricky. Did that happen in that scene?
1: No, I think no, because we did preserve the part of the scene. I mean, the, we didn't cut out anything that was, absolutely necessary to those points to those character points and those story points that all remained intact so the performances were already there and we heightened them or shortened them but we didn't really take out anything vitally important
0: there thank you so much for talking to me about this movie i really enjoyed it and uh it, it felt like it was cut like butter
1: oh thank you very much that's wonderful to hear coming from you <laughs>
0: Sandra, thank. ah uh, that's that's the funniest thing I've heard all day. Thank you so much oh. for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, are you what are you cutting something now on a new uh, project?
1: Yes. yes, I'm working on uh, I'm finishing up one documentary and I just started another documentary. I live in Austin, so thank God, there's you know really interesting. Filmmakers here that are doing other things rather than big Hollywood films, and I'm able to work on these more regional and uh, important little docs while you know Rick is writing and doing other things.
0: Can I ask you one more question since you brought up the fact that you of cut course. documentaries? There is a documentary, or I guess there were two, in this movie. Did you cut them? Did you put on your documentary filmmaker hat when you were editing the, <laughs> the documentary saying, I'm going to cut this differently than the rest of the film?
1: Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And they, as I said earlier, they were extremely lengthy, and it went into huge amounts of detail. And, like, for example, the conflict... I mean, Bernadette and her neighbor Nigel Mills-Murray who is this like really out there um, like TV show host with extremely bad taste the feud between the two of them there was a huge amount of detail where there was a Hollywood Oscar party and Bernadette had some of the cars towed because they shared a driveway and she had party guests Cars towed, which pissed off the neighbor, and that kind of, there were just a lot of reasons why he wanted to destroy Bernadette's house. It was a huge amount of material, and we finally realized that people are going to understand the feud with or without all of that detail, and um, for purposes of kind of slimming down the film, we had to remove a lot of that stuff. And like I said in the first part of the documentary, there was a lot more about her process of uh, finding objects and using them in her architecture. Yeah, I mean, the documentary is cut like a documentary. We had so much archival footage and stills and, you know, all kinds of stuff that you would normally be using in a documentary. We used a different composer. To do the music because oh, we didn't want the music to sound anything like what the score sounds like. but We really, we really did it up. Uh, the art department created all those sketches of the Twenty Mile House and the created the Beaver Bifocal interior, which was they had the art department in uh, Pittsburgh. Wove together all those bifocal frames, and <laughs> I mean, it was it was like a huge part of the film that ended up being, you know, just shortened and, and moved around a lot.
0: I hope the documentary or two are going to be able to be seen in their full length on a DVD sometime.
1: Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? I don't. I'm not sure exactly what was pulled for the DVD, but probably I wouldn't doubt it.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, and good luck with the rest of your editing today.
1: Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Steve.
0: Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out provideocoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Sandra Adair, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, Give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.